morning. Today's reading is taken from Colossians 1, 13 to 23. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and for which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Tom. Um, if you can keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 1, let's go through it together. And let me just warn you that actually the first two points will be much longer than the third point. Third point will be, so if you're thinking, oh, he's only at the end of second point by now, I just I want to assure you that it will soon end when we come to the third point. But let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your word We thank you that we get to read it, we thank you that we get to study it, and we thank you that we get to hear it this morning. And we pray that you will speak to us, that transforming power of your word will be very evident. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been talking about gospel changes for the last uh, few weeks, and changes take place not when we think about ourselves, not when we're stuck in what we, uh, uh, in what's going on in our minds, but when we're drawn out of ourselves into something that's greater than ourselves. And that's what this series has been about, losing ourselves in order to find it in Jesus, who is greater than us, giving up our rights in, uh, for the work of the gospel, um, using our gifts not for selfish gains, but for the common good, for, uh, the, uh, for uh, Jesus' sake. But again and again, this is not what we see in the church. Churches are engaged in petty debates about power or money, secondary theological issues. And you might ask, why is that the case? Why is that the case? J.R. Packer, in his classic, Knowing God, 
wrote, we are pygmy Christians because we have a pygmy God. We're the small Christians because we have a small view of God. We've been talking about how we ought to lose ourselves in Christ, but maybe it's difficult because our vision of who Christ is is too small. We need to refresh our vision of who Jesus is. And actually, that's the only way we will change. And Colossians, the book of Colossians, and chapter 1, actually, specifically, is, the, is a great place to begin, to begin the correction of our vision of Jesus. So take a look at what Paul says Jesus is in chapter, uh, in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. That, that's, this is what this means. God who could not be seen before, who by nature could not be seen, God who is invisible became visible. Remember, during the time of the Old Testament, people couldn't see God for the fear that they, if they saw God, they would die. But Jesus is the exact representation, the mirror image of the invisible God. God who was invisible is now made visible. Whoever sees Jesus sees God himself. It's a paradox, but it is, that's who Jesus is. It's God, uh, exact representation of God Father. And this Jesus has the preeminent position in the whole of creation because God the Father created all things through Jesus. Paul goes on to say in, in, in verses 15 through 17, 17, look how he repeats all things in that little ancient hymn, verses 15 through 17. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in, in, in him, all things hold together. Everything in this world has been created by Christ, not just the material things, and that includes all material things, but it includes all powers, all thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, he says. And there's more. I don't know if you caught the preposition for here. Everything was created for him, verse 16. And I don't know what uh, we uh, fathers received this little um, chocolate gift. I don't know what the greatest gift that you've received um, was well, the Father's gift for the Son was the whole of the creation. It's the whole universe. God the Father created this thing for Him, for Jesus. Jesus is a God like that, the one who receives the whole of the universe. That's Jesus. But what do you think of Jesus? I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but for many, being a new Christian is a new and exciting thing. New Christians are brimming with joy because the reality of who Jesus is is very real to them. But after a while, that joy slight sort of fades away, and we start believing that we know everything about Jesus. We know everything about God. We know everything about the Bible. The preaching starts sounding exactly the same. I'm sorry, but that might be your fault too. <laughs> Um, that we, we, we lose, uh, ex- we, we, we think that Christianity, we know everything about Christianity. Actually, it was precisely in that context that the book of Colossians was written. The false teachers in uh, Colossae were, were offering um, new and exciting other traditions in addition to Jesus. And they looked down on others as simple people and approached these people who have, uh, who felt that they have outgrown, um, the simplicities of uh, the apostles' teaching. But 
You see, Paul is saying that there is no other thing to add. There is no additional philosophy higher than Christ's. There are no thrones or powers or rulers or authorities other than Christ because he created everything. Everything is held together by him. We can't outgrow Christ. And all the goodness that we see around us, whether it's stars in the sky that points to Christ's beauty and the intellect of, a, of even an atheist philosopher, reflects Christ's wisdom, a mother's love for her baby that points to self-sacrificial love of Christ, the sweetness of the honey that reminds of the sweetness of God's word. They all point to the goodness of Christ. Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He, All the good things of the world point to Christ. We can't outgrow Christ because Christ holds everything together. But we often shrink him. We have shrunk him because Christ, um, instead of worshiping Jesus in the Bible, Jesus of the Bible, we imagine that he is no bigger than the slight image that we have in our minds, that we have created in our minds. We think that we understand God already, and we often assume, we often read the Bible assuming that we know exactly what it's going to say. No, Christ is bigger than the God of your imagination, God that, that you expect Christ to be. And isn't that why we're often maybe disappointed with God? Maybe we believe in a God who doesn't allow us to be sick. Is that God of the Scripture? Perhaps we're disappointed because we, we are not given a life that we had, uh, we, we, we had imagined. But is that the problem with real Jesus? Or is that a problem of the God of our imagination? Here's the thing. If you look to your imagination to find God, you will often be disappointed. And that's a violation of the second commandment, if you think about it. We're creating an image after ourselves. God is probably, that God that's in your mind is probably no, it's slightly, a slightly better version of yourself. The Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, we see perfect image of God himself. And we get that God in the Bible. If you read the Bible, we're constantly surprised, aren't we? There we see a God who sleeps while the disciples are about to get overwhelmed by the storm. Because Jesus believes that storm is not the biggest problem that they're facing. It's the lack of faith. Throughout the Bible, God tells us that sickness and suffering, um, suffering shouldn't be our biggest concern. Our biggest concern should be our sin. There we see a God who doesn't talk about poverty as uh, the biggest issue facing the world. He says, actually, wealth is for you. There we see a God who does not believe in putting the blood family first, but God who, uh, who joins us together, fa- who makes family out of strangers. Often we look to TV, often we look to our experiences, often we look to our sciences or even our imagination to think of what God is like. But there we won't find God. Look to Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There is no other. He is bigger than your imagination. He will confront you. He has created everything. Everything is held together by him. The gospel should change us. It should make Jesus big and us small. It should make us marvel at Christ as we look at the world and as we study the scripture. It makes us trust him even when we actually don't understand, don't fully understand everything that is going on around us because he is bigger. So Jesus is the supreme king. 
because he's the creator. But he's also supreme, and, and, and uh, uh, he has the preeminent position because he has reconciled all things to himself. And he has done this by himself, and there's nothing that we can add to it. There are lots of problems in this world. You know, as we look back at this at uh, 2014, and and even now, there's just so many problems facing this world. There's the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, and we heard about that from Misha last week. And the European economy seems at the brink of collapse with the uh, uh, with Greece. U.S. interest rate is maybe about to go up, and, and people don't know how to respond um, to this. Hong Kong, the government relationship with China, and the tension between China and the U.S. All these things are all around us. And that's just the big and scary stuff. Actually, there are all sorts of things going on in your life as well. Our backaches, fever, loved ones passing away, problems in the workplace, long hours, not enough rest, all those things. Children crying too much. There was this New Yorker um, cartoon that had God and the angel talking to each other on a cloud. The angel says to God, have you tried turning it off and on again? (laughs) But look at what God has done in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all things, all all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile uh, to himself all things, whether things on earth and things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is what this means. Jesus has reconciled all things. There's all the problems that you see in the world, all the problems that you face right now is reconciled, it's done away with in Christ Jesus. That's the scale of Christ's salvation. What Paul's saying is that one day, because what Jesus has done, he will solve all these problems. God has reconciled, think about the scale, uh, God has reconciled the creation to himself and therefore we to the creation. Paul wrote in Romans that the creation creation has been groaning um, as in pains of childbirth since our fall. But it no longer does, not in the same way. Because of Christ. Because Christ has reconciled the creation to himself and therefore us to the creation. The creation will not harm people one day. It will not hinder our work in the future rather than producing thorns and thistles. In the, and get in the way of our work, the creation, and we will work together. We will live in harmony. We won't harm the earth, and it will not harm us because of the reconciling work of Christ. That's what Jesus has done. God has also reconciled all of us to himself and therefore with each other. One day, because of the work of Christ, the wealth gap between the rich and the poor will no longer be a problem. Racism that we saw this week, gun violence, the wars will be a distant memory because of Christ. Because of Jesus, all weapons will turn into plowshares. Because of the work of Christ, there will be no more struggle for power or money or sex because we will be reconciled to each other. That's what Christ has accomplished. He has reconciled all people to himself and us to each other. And most importantly, our relationship with God has been reconciled. That's the fact... that is, um, that's in fact how we, uh, uh, that's how we're reconciled to the creation, to each other, because we're reconciled back with God. Look at what Paul wrote in verse, uh, verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviors. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We often call those who oppose Christ um, lost or misguided. The Bible says that they were enemies. We were once enemies. We were once alienated and enemies of God. We rejected him and we deserved his wrath. But instead of getting what we deserve, God gave us peace because of the blood shed on the cross. God, God, Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. God has rescued us, transferring our membership from the authority of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And we're made inheritors of the kingdom of light, Paul writes in chapter 1. We are reconciled. We're holy and without blemish, free from guilt. We are because of Jesus. And that's just the scale of what Jesus has done for us. That's the scale of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. And the thing, the good news in this is that we have no part to play. We can't add to what Christ has done already. Christ's work is perfectly sufficient. He has done this. You saw the radical change in the tense, did you, in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. That's in past tense, but in verse 22. But now he has reconciled you. You were, but now. That's what Christ has done. Salvation has been accomplished in Jesus, and we can't add anything to it. Following Christ's rules are good things to do. Coming to church, praying, tithing, serving, reading the Bible are all good things, but they don't add to our standing before God, in front of God. Christ's work has done that. The greatness of our salvation is not in just a scale, but that it is perfectly sufficient. If you try to add something to it, then you're actually subtracting from it. You're saying Christ's work has not been sufficient. And I think if we really know the scale and sufficiency of Christ's work, I think it should change our life. It should change our attitude towards our work and towards how we view ourselves. If we realize this, I think we will be able to understand the limits of our work and be realistic about the scale of the problem that face us. I don't know if you've heard of a thing called compassion fatigue. I came across the term when I went to Honduras uh, for a couple of years as a short-term missionary. I went uh, to Honduras really with the hopes of changing the country. I was an idealist, and I, I just I had probably um, I was too young. And I didn't know what was going on. Um, but when I went, I was faced with uh, the the history of 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 Honduras. What went the authorities and the powers that shaped the country? And I thought that this was bigger than me. I couldn't do it. I also underestimated the the powers of our sinfulness depth of people's sinfulness and our capacity to harm each other. There are optimists and idealists among us who believe that if we work hard enough, then actually we can transform this world. We can change the world. We can save the world. But that's not true. It's not to say that we can't make any difference. But the scale of the world's problem is beyond us. But it wasn't too big for Jesus. He has reconciled all things to himself. And that world in which everything is reconciled will come. He, the heaven, the kingdom of God will come from heaven down to earth. That's the vision that we see in Revelation 21. 
And actually, that's how we can keep going at the face of persistent poverty, persistent injustice, persistent sinfulness in this world. After a couple of years under Honduras, I became a cynic, thinking that nothing can change the country. But you see, that too stems from the belief that we are the sole agents of change, that we need to do it. But Christ has saved it. He will bring that kingdom down to earth. And we keep going because we have been saved already. We have been made citizens of that kingdom, and we live that reality now. That's why we keep going. That's why we live differently, because we have been saved. We have been transferred into this kingdom of light, and we are citizens of that kingdom. We do things differently. We keep going as a testament to the fact that that kingdom will come here on earth. Jesus will bring that kingdom we believe we're people who believe that our work in Christ is not is 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 not in vain that Christ will somehow also use our work and similarly in a micro scale that's how we should view ourselves you know people who are eternally optimistic about how much they can change if we you know people who believe if i work hard enough if i can if i'm just disciplined enough then actually i can attain this status free from from blemish free from accusation if you think that you actually don't understand how deeply sinful you are we can succeed in behavioral modification but we can't perform heart surgery on ourselves our sinfulness goes that deep and only Christ can give you a new heart. And he has done it. And that's why we keep going. That's why we seek to live our ho- in our holiness. Because Christ has given us that holiness. Christ has given us that future. Because he has made us anew already. As we end in this series, um, we've been talking about how we ought to change. How the gospel should change us. And at the heart of it wasn't the question about logistics or church growth. At the heart of it was the question, what does it mean to grow in maturity as followers of Jesus? What does it mean to no longer be baby Christians? And this is what maturity means. We're no longer self-focused. Christ calls us to deny ourselves, to find ourselves in Christ. We're gospel-focused. We deny our, we give up our rights freely. We use our freedom to give up what we're entitled to so that the gospel work could continue. We discover and use our gifts that God has given us, not for selfish gains, but for the common good, for Christ's sake. And in all this, we look to Jesus, who is our head. And that's how we grow in maturity, if we grow into the headship of Christ, lordship of Christ. Verse 18, Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church. And as he holds the whole universe together, he holds this church together. If we look to ourselves, we'll only fall apart. Our wisdom falls short. We'll veer into idol worship. We'll think that we'll make the mistake of thinking that we are our own saviors or we are the saviors of the world. But if we look to Christ, the headship of Christ means that he's also the source of this renewal. If we look to him for renewing, if we look to him for renewing of ourselves, renewing of the world, things will change. We will grow in maturity. And Paul says in verse 23, this is what he means, if you continue in your faith, 
established and firm and not move from the hope held out into the gospel, in the gospel. A church that is growing can look to all sorts of things, all sorts of ideas, but the Bible gives a fairly simple picture of how to do church. Trust in the supremacy of Christ. Trust in the sufficiency of Christ and look to him, grow into his headship. We can't be pygmy Christians because our God is too big for it. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our vision of you have been too small. Lord, enlarge our vision of who you are. Help us to see your glory in all of the creation. Help us to see that you are bigger than us. Help us to see your goodness in our salvation. Help us to trust in the sufficiency of that salvation. And help us to look to you in all things. Help us to draw our strength. Be renewed day by day as we look to your son, Jesus, until your coming come, your coming kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.